At the time Don died, he considered the paper his enemy. He was not on friendly terms with anybody but Tom Sanford, his editor. He had given Tom a set of his notes, told me that more than once. I'm telling this from Don's point of view, from what he said to me. Don trusted Tom and told me that he was about the only person there that he really trusted at that point. There were a couple others. I mean, he liked many of them, but he trusted Tom. Did not trust senior management at all. They did not want him being an investigative reporter. That's how he saw himself. The paper did not like whatever it was they thought he was doing and wanted to get him out of Phoenix. They were trying to move him out into a region, being a regional reporter, you know, doing, what, birthday parties and anniversaries or whatever. I mean, he was furious, Tom was furious about what they were talking about doing with him. So there's a lot of animosity and it was escalating to the point where I wasn't sure that he wasn't gonna quit until he told me two days before the bombing that he said, I've got the story and now I'm ready to write. The story involved Emprise, Funks, Mafia, some leadership people in Arizona, a lot of politicians, a lot of business people. A lot, he said a lot of heads will roll. The audio you just heard was provided to us by filmmaker Nick Bartlett. It's from an interview he conducted for the documentary Who Killed Don Bowles? That was the voice of Kathy Colby who today is the world-renowned founder of Colby Corp. She's an enormously successful author, entrepreneur, and speaker. But in the mid-70s, she was wife to Phoenix Gazette columnist John Colby, as well as a close friend and confidant of Don and Rosalie Bowles. Before his death, Don Bowles would confide in Kathy not only his feelings about the Arizona Republic, but sensitive information regarding his ongoing investigations. As a matter of fact, during the 11 days that Rosalie Bowles kept vigil at the hospital by Don's side, it was Kathy Colby who cared for the Bowles' children. She was also close with Tom Sanford. While working for the Arizona Republic, Tom Sanford and Don Bowles were not just colleagues, they were good friends. Sanford eventually became Bowles's personal editor, as Don Devereaux explains. Don Bowles had, which I did not realize until later, a special editor at the Arizona Republic uh, who basically handled almost all of his stuff. Uh, Don was not a great writer, and he needed a lot of help with his prose, but he was a good investigator. And it worked out over the years that Sanford was the guy that handled Bowles particularly. And they had to be careful with Don because he was always involved, you know, one step away from a libel suit, given what he was writing. So it took special attention, but I did not know that until much later. But Sanford was the guy, and uh, Sanford had been um, a guy with a World War II background. He was a, a guy who had uh, flown a fighter plane for what initially was the Army Air Corps before it became the U.S. Air Force. He was shot down over France by the Germans. He was hidden out by a French farm family for a while until the American or British troops or somebody got that far mm -hmm. and never got captured by the, by the Germans. 
Uh, he was a, a survivor. He was a ballsy guy. Not a very big guy. One of his attributes as a fighter pilot is he fit comfortably into the, the cabin of a fighter plane. Uh, he was, you know, five six or something, five seven. Not very, not very big. Mm-hmm. Um, Hundred and twenty some pounds, probably a small guy. Feisty but small, and uh, and a good writer and a good editor. I've heard nothing about him other than good stuff. Bowles, as we've mentioned, had continued to undertake discreet investigative work on subjects such as the mafia and the dog racing track after being pulled from the investigative beat and relocated. Tom Sanford not only knew about Bowles' generally hidden activities, but he was assisting him. Bowles was also providing backup copies of some particularly sensitive research files for safekeeping, according to Sanford's widow, Janet, and Kathy Colby. When Don was killed, Tom was obviously very concerned about that, had his own feelings about what might have happened. He asked permission from the paper to be one of the people from the Republic that joined the Arizona Project, was turned down, and even told he shouldn't have any contact with us, leave us alone. And that aggravated him, and he began his own private investigation of the Bulls case. Sanford's widow Janet stated that he didn't have much confidence in the official investigation conducted by the Phoenix Police Department and the Arizona Attorney General's office. He eventually began his own investigation. Bowles' widow, Rosalie, and Kathy Colby were also aware of Sanford's work. Early in January of 77, Sanford's daughter Susan, home for Christmas break from Northern Arizona University, witnessed her father come home late one night, appearing agitated. Now, according to her signed legal affidavit, Tom Sanford told her he had been out interviewing someone, but never said who. It was later discovered that the person Sanford was interviewing that night was Phoenix attorney Neil Roberts. I don't know all the things it entailed, but it did include, toward the end of his life, an interview of Neil Roberts, which apparently happened during an evening, which would lead me to suspect that Neil may have been in a more loquacious mood than normal when he was interviewed by Tom. And Tom came home and told his daughter he had just learned something that could get them all killed. Something else was happening during this time frame. Whoever was involved in the murder of Don Bowles had become concerned that Neil Roberts was a potential problem, especially after a few drinks. He was being watched. What the bad guys did is they continued to surveil Neil long after this happened to see who he was meeting and talking to. And when Tom Sanford met with Neil in in January of 77, you know, that may have been how they figured out what happened. Whenever Neil sold the house and property on Virginia, this might have been later than 77. A real estate agency represented by a female agent handled Neil's property. When she ultimately had a buyer, she went by Neil's office late one afternoon to tell him closing was going to be within a few days. And he opened a drawer, pulled out a bottle, they had a drink. And she was there for probably the best part of an hour, chatting with Neil, having a drink or two, and socializing. And I later interviewed her. In the middle of the night that night, like at 2 o'clock in the morning, she got a phone call on her home phone. She said the person sounded like a lawyer, whatever that meant, but it was threatening. And it it was a call that basically told her if, if they ever saw her with Neil again, 
she's gonna, she was gonna regret it. She took it seriously. The point being, Neil was obviously under surveillance, and that meant when Sanford met with him, he probably was also, because he met with Neil at Neil's place. And Sanford met with Neil late in the evening, or after, after dinner, certainly, according to himself. And the later in the day you met with Neil, the more you have to learn. Because the drunker Neil got, the more careless he became. And so if Sanford met with Neil, the people surveilling him may have witnessed the meeting, identified Sanford from his place, if nothing else, learned he was an editor at the Republic, and confronted Neil. And Neil might, not, Neil might have even said, maybe I said too much. I mean, who knows what Neil told him. Uh, but Sanford came home that night and told his daughter he had just learned something to get them all killed. At around the same time, Sanford had reached a breaking point with his bosses at the paper. Sanford eventually resigned from the Arizona Republic on January 24th, 1977, declaring that he had had enough and packed up his desk. Tom was so fed up with everything at the paper. He said, screw it, you know, I'm leaving. He put in his resignation notice and I'm, I'm moving on. And he would have had no time, no trouble doing that. He was a respected journalist in town and had other options, other papers. Uh, he had a possible hiring by the University of Arizona as a PR guy. Uh, he was going to interview with APS as a public relations person. He had jobs lined up. The following statement is taken from a legal affidavit signed by Kathy Colby regarding an event that took place on the morning of January 25th, 1977, at the home of Rosalie Bowles. During the morning of January 25th, 1977, I was sitting next to Rosalie Bowles at her kitchen table when she received a phone call from Tom Sanford. To make it possible for me to hear, she moved the phone away from her ear a bit and beckoned me to move closer so that I could listen as well. I was able to hear enough of what he said to know that he was elated about what he had learned and was anxious to tell her about it as soon as possible. He indicated that he finally had managed to put the pieces of Don's murder plot together and now had a good understanding of the particulars of what had happened. Sanford was quite animated in that conversation with Rosalie, at times lowering his voice, seemingly to avoid being overheard by someone in the area from which he was phoning. In that call, Sanford suggested meeting with Rosalie to share what he had learned as soon as possible. Midday was out, he noted, because he already had a lunch meeting arranged. Rosalie was going to be tied up later that afternoon with matters involving her children. Consequently, they agreed to meet discreetly the following morning in a park somewhere in Phoenix, I've forgotten which one, where nobody was apt to recognize them. Sanford sounded very happy that they found a near-term time to meet and was highly animated in telling her how thrilled he was about the breakthrough. Rosalie Bowles called Phoenix PD detective John Sellers as soon as she got off the phone with Sanford to notify him about her upcoming meeting the following day. Sanford then had lunch with Bill Meek, a former Arizona Republic staff writer, at noon that day. They enjoyed a lively meal, according to Meek, with plenty of personal conversation. Sanford returned to his home in Northeast Phoenix that afternoon after lunch with Meek. He told Rosalie, that he, you know, he had learned who killed her, her husband, and he was going to meet her and tell her that the next day, and set up a meeting with her the following morning at a park in a remote area of Phoenix where nobody would know either one of them, where they could meet and talk about this. And that was like late morning of the day he died. He then went and had lunch with Bill Meek, and then by mid-afternoon was on his way to the desert to be killed. Two hours later, 
at about 4.30 p.m., Sanford's body was found on the ground near his car off Beeline Highway. Someone was walking by when they noticed and called the sheriff's office. His body was found in a desert location about 30 to 45 minutes outside of the city. Bert Andrews, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office detective assigned to the case, arrived at the scene around 5.30 p.m. Sanford was identified because his wallet, which had his license, was found in the front seat of the vehicle. A shotgun explosion blew off part of Sanford's head. There was a half-empty bottle of Jim Beam whiskey in the car, and the shotgun used was owned by Sanford himself. Sanford commits suicide, quote-unquote commits suicide, who was the Bowles editor, and it was also a dear friend of ours, and his wife was the woman's editor at the Republic. So his wife, you know, it was like this double whammy, because we knew both of them so well. Uh, Janet Sanford, who just recently died, just last year, and, um, and he supposedly shot himself with a gun that he had received from the Arizona Press Club for an award that he'd gotten for being an outstanding editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy was a magnificent journalist. He was an absolute magnificent journalist. And, and there are many theories that this was not a suicide whatsoever, but this was another killing that has gone unsolved. I have a hard time believing that he would have had a meeting with Bill Meek without Meek. I, I interviewed Meek at Lake, picking up some sense of distress and or that he would have made an appointment to meet Rosalie Bowles the next morning and then without any warning to her killed himself. Uh, That just strikes me as unlikely. And I mean, Tom did have moments of problems with depression like a lot of people did, but he also was a survivor. And and, uh, I I just have a hard time believing he would have suddenly after lunch with Bill Meek decided to burn the file and take himself out in the desert, blow his head up with a shotgun. That just strikes me as unlikely. Following day, January 26, 1977, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office ruled the Sanford case close. Little over 24 hours. It was ruled a suicide. Because of resigning from his job at the newspaper, they believe Sanford was depressed, got drunk, and killed himself. Rosalie Bowles did not for a second believe that Sanford had committed suicide. Here, once again, is Kathy Colby. She said, well, we know it's not true. Kathy, it's another murder. They got him too. And she believed without any doubt that they killed him so that he couldn't tell what he knew. As we look back on this case in Devereaux's reports, he explains when comparing this case to others, there are procedural standards that were not met in the Sanford case, making it even more ineffective, misleading, and difficult to explain unless it was done on purpose. According to Devereaux, there are various reasons why this case should not have been ruled a suicide. The CSI who was called to the scene of Tom Sanford's body would discover some very disturbing evidence. He was called as a, as a, as a CSI, he was called with a sheriff's code 666, which is a suicide code. And, but, and he discovered there were no fingerprints on the shotgun, not even smudge partials, which is very disturbing. 
and it later turned out that the liquor bottle in the back seat was not confirmed by any liquor in his system. It was a prop. So, you know, the whole and the shotgun may have been too long for him to have actually pulled the trigger where it was placed on his cheek. There were all kinds of things about this crime scene that did not exactly mesh. And even though the CSI called all of this to the attention, what could be called to the attention at the time to the to the detectives, they paid no attention. And the medical examiner very quickly called it a suicide. <laughs> and uh, there was not enough evidence there to call it a homicide, but they should have called it undetermined. Mm-hmm. That's what it should have ended up, which would have left it an open case. So you have a shotgun that doesn't even have a partial fingerprint of the man who allegedly fired it, no alcohol in Tom Sanford's system, yet a half-empty bottle of whiskey is in the car as a prop. The whiskey bottle also seems to have been wiped clean of fingerprints. A shotgun that should have been kicked a few feet away was placed neatly between the victim's legs. Looking at the evidence, it's unclear why authorities ruled this a suicide. Was it lazy detective work or something more sinister? Were they covering up a murder? I suspect he had learned some things that were consistent with what Don was working on and with Don's dying words from Neil. Would be my best guess. But, you know, the difficulty is that when Tom Sanford died violently in in January of 77, uh, whatever file he had on that vanished with him. And he was, he was a meticulous kind of guy. He would have kept notes of whatever he was doing. There would have been a Bowles investigative file at his house. Mm-hmm. And in the aftermath of his death, his widow could never find that file. Which meant that he, two possibilities. In the process of committing suicide, he destroyed the file. Or in the process of being murdered, the guys that came to his house to take him out to the desert also came to pick up his file, which would have included his interview with Neil Roberts, which is what I suspect happened. Um, But one or the other, and the file is gone. And uh, we don't know what Tom knew other than he apparently talked to Neil and learned something. Because he told Rosalie that he he had learned who killed her her husband, and he was going to meet her and tell her that the next day. A number of people from Rosalie Bowles to Kathy Colby and Jeanette Sanford confirm that Don Bowles was giving copies of his most sensitive investigative work to Tom Sanford. They also confirm that Sanford was conducting his own covert investigation into the murder of Don Bowles. Yet, after Sanford's death, all of this material went missing. Here's another excerpt from a legal affidavit, this time from Tom Sanford's widow, Janet. In the interim between Tom's death and my departure from Arizona, repeated searches of our Phoenix home, where Tom most likely would have kept discrete files, failed to turn up either A, the sensitive investigative materials which Bowles had been giving to Tom as backup, or B, Tom's notes from his own investigation into Bowles' death. They all were missing and have remained so. Don Devereaux writes a theory in his report stating it is very possible whoever killed Don Bowles felt Sanford was getting too close to the truth. Devereaux believes that whoever killed Bowles was likely monitoring Sanford from his home and waiting for his son Kyle to leave before taking him 
and stealing any files relating to Bowles. They could have then easily moved him out the back door so there would be no witnesses, gotten in his car, and driven to the desert with another vehicle following. They may have put up what appeared to be a suicide scene in the desert with the shotgun between his knees and a half-empty whiskey bottle. He didn't commit suicide. I don't believe it for a moment. Why would he kill himself? It made no sense. And tied with all the other things, his fear of saying anything on the phone, his distrust of the newspaper, his belief that they were part and parcel to cover up. Because Tom, Rosalie, and I all knew things that we were reading in the paper that were being said weren't true. And then I remember saying something to the effect of maybe it's best if you don't know the truth, Rosalie. Tom Sanford's death barely made a ripple in the local press. Led by the Republic, a narrative was quickly created that painted Sanford as having been depressed and despondent over losing his job at the newspaper. Something both his family and friends claim was far from the truth. A second journalist investigating the same avenues as Don Bowles had met a violent end. Yet no one, not the Phoenix PD, not the Arizona Republic, not even the Arizona Project seemed to notice. Meanwhile, within a few years, the Arizona Supreme Court would overturn the convictions of Max Dunlap and Jimmy Robeson. Beginning in the 1980s, a number of journalists, including Jana Bombersbach and Don Devereaux, having lost faith in the Phoenix Police Department's case, would begin investigations of their own. 